Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Really packed it in this morning so far. The uh, good news is we're drawing towards the close of our service and God will soon release us into the world, which is our mission field. And I want to just share with you a sermon that is near and dear to my heart. Um, this, this preparation of this sermon has been doing a very good work in me as I've been preparing it this week. So uh, I hope it will be a blessing to you. Uh, if you guys could cue up John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I want to just go through the text this morning with you. We're beginning, our, we're resuming, I should say, our 100 Things series. And if you're relatively new to our church, about, I don't know, 10 years ago, how long, it feels like 10 years ago, we started the longest sermon series in history. 100 sermons you should really hear from the Bible if you're, if you're with our church for a number of, of years. And so we try to find... 50 key passages from the Old Testament and 50 key passages from the New Testament, which you really need to understand as you walk in faith. So this this week, we're resuming with the New Testament message number 51 in that series. And the title is The Word Became Flesh. And I'm going to be speaking out of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, there are passages that better men than myself have have written on and preached on from this passages like this one. And they've written volumes. There is no way that I'm going to mine the depths of this passage in one sermon. And so if you're theologically robust, there is more I'm not going to say than that I am going to say. All right? And so don't be distracted. If you're a Bible student and you love the Word of God, you know this passage inside and out, I promise you I'm going to leave 80 hours of preaching on the table, on the cutting room floor. 
But I want to key in on one particular part of this and then touch other parts of this passage to explore together what it means that the word became flesh. Now, I want to ask you, have you ever known somebody who is extraordinarily quiet and private? Somebody who you actually, if you think about it, you don't know what their voice sounds like because they never talk to you. Now, this is maybe a person who is shy. Maybe it's not shy. Maybe they just are not very trusting. And so as a result, they keep to themselves. And all the time that you've known them, you realize, I actually don't know you that well because I haven't really heard your voice. Now, the reason I'm asking you that is because I think that's the way some of us think God is. I think that's the way God is often portrayed in the Bible. I mean, not in the, in the world, not in the world. A lot of people feel that God is this mystical, hidden being who's playing hide-and-seek with humanity. And if you want to know God, you've got to try really hard to find him because he's hiding from us. But that's not the way it is. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you read the Bible, what you see is a picture emerging of a God who is not hiding. He's not playing coy. He wants us to know him. He is trying very hard to reveal himself to us as clearly as possible. And so God is not like that quiet or private friend who is so secretive. He is shouting from the mountaintops, this is who I am. I want you to know me. Now, again, if you're new to the church, one other interesting thing about the sermon series I want to draw your attention to, see that picture. That's not clip art I got from the Internet. We have a gifted artist named Heath at our church who uh, is partnering with me in this series. And each week that I preach, he and I have a long conversation about what direction I'm going. And then he draws a picture commissioned just for this sermon. And this is of an embryo forming, a fetus forming. And if you can't quite see it clearly, but... But those are Hebrew letters. The word of God is becoming flesh. And so each week you'll be treated to a new illustration as well as a sermon. So I want you to be excited about that. And we'll also do some exciting things with those finished pictures when the the whole series is done. Now, this is a very good illustration of the principle that we want to talk about. It says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. I was wondering why, as Jesus is being introduced in what is perhaps the most intimate and personal of the four Gospels, why is John using the word, the word, to introduce Jesus? That's a very strange choice, isn't it? What is it about the word that depicts who Jesus is? And and I think there are a lot of good explanations for this. But one of them that I really like is this. I believe words reveal the essence of a person. Think about how little we would know about one another if we were not given the gift of words. If you couldn't speak, you couldn't write. I mean, this was one of the great challenges for those working with Helen Keller was that there was something trapped inside of her. There was this amazing human being, but without the ability to connect to the world and to other human beings through words, there was such a barrier that had to be overcome in order for us to see the essence of who Helen Keller was. To an average person, they would see somebody who can't speak, who can't see, who can't hear. And they said, that person is shut off. For all we know, they might have nothing going on in there. Oh, but nothing could be further from the truth, right? There was so much surging inside there. And so through the, the gift of words, we reveal and express the essence of who we are. We explain ourselves to the world around us. 
And in a sense, that's very true of, what, or of who Jesus Christ is to us. He is God's ultimate expression of revealing himself. Jesus is God, the Trinity, showing human beings what God is, what he's like. In fact, if words reveal the essence of a person, then words have the power to shape reality, don't they? And as God, the word, is being made flesh, what we're seeing is God's ultimate act of communication with humanity. Look at what it says at the end of this passage. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. That's referring to Jesus. He has made him known. In other words, no one has seen God, but if you've seen Jesus, then you have seen God. Another way of saying that is that in Jesus Christ, God is in the ultimate possible way revealing what he's like to the world. Now, we also know that it's not only through our words, but through our actions that we make ourselves known, right? If it was just words, that wouldn't be enough because let's face it, some of the people sitting right by us right now, there's a lot of words, but without action, we start doubting, don't we? Sure, you're going to work out this year, Uh uh-huh. You're going to lose all that weight this year. Uh We doubt because with words alone, there isn't much power. There is revelation, but it's when words and actions combine that reality takes shape, doesn't it? And so so this is what God is doing. He's saying there is the word through which the universe was made, through which God expresses and reveals himself, but it wasn't enough to just be words. He is now taking on a physical dimension. He is becoming flesh and blood so that he will not only speak to us, he will live among us. He will be fleshed out in such a way that through the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ, human beings can finally wrap our minds around who God is. He's not the scary guy living in a volcano and we just keep throwing in virgins and it still keeps erupting. That is not who God is. We cannot wrap our minds around a concept as big as God without help. And so God makes this great move and he takes on physical form and he joins us down here so that we can know God. Theologians call this amazing act the incarnation. That's a fancy Latin word that simply means becoming meat, right? Becoming meat. In other words, the the word of God, eternal, transcendent, glorious, becomes encased in meat and bones and skin like all of us. And I want to explore that. And I want to show you why that matters to us. Because so far, if you're not a theology junkie, you're already preparing your daydream so that you can fall slowly asleep over the remainder of the sermon, aren't you? I mean, as soon as you're all this theological, some of you, I know it. I feel the vibe in the room right now. Oh, Lord, this is going to be a hard one. There's no jokes yet. He hasn't shown us any cool pictures. And, you know, I know where you are. I want to convince you. I want to assure you the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ matters to us. The first thing I think the incarnation shows us about God, I mean, what does this reveal about our God, is that God came near. God came near. Look what it says. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's Eugene Peterson's loose paraphrase or translation of this verse, verse 14, that the word became flesh. It says, the word of God became flesh 
and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I wonder if we're ever going to fully understand what an amazing thing that is. That Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven by the Father's side to come down here. Now, because we live here, this is not the slums. This is our neighborhood, our home. And so when he comes, we're so blessed by it. But the truth is, it was an act of incredible humility for Jesus to come among us. I remember several years ago, I read an article in the Chicago Tribune about a suburban family, a white suburban family from, I, I want to say, Lake Zurich or Long Grove or some, one of those places up kind of north and west of here. And they had four children, and they were doing the sort of weekend warrior thing in an urban ministry down in inner city Chicago. Um, and, and every weekend, they would go down there and hand out sandwiches and talk to people. And they were growing to love the people in that area. They were really thriving in doing this ministry. And one day, the, the Lord just got a hold of them, and the husband and wife talked, and they said, you know, we're not content being weekend warriors. It doesn't feel right to us that we retreat from the brokenness of this urban setting into our luxurious suburban McMansion and we, our kids have soccer leagues and all that and they're safe. They don't have to lock their windows at night. We're not afraid to have them play in the backyard. And so it felt wrong that they would go into this place, do ministry, and then run away to the safety of the suburban homes. And so they made the decision to move into the inner city with their four young children into one of the most dangerous areas of town and they set up shop there and they lived among the people they were serving and at that point the ministry skyrocketed because they were no longer foreign body coming in giving drive-by charity shootings they were part of the neighborhood they moved in to the neighborhood so the people they once served from a distance they are now near to them now that was such a noteworthy thing that even a secular newspaper thought this was worthy of printing in the news we universally recognize such acts as noble and good and frightfully scary to think about if we were to follow that example. But that portrays a picture of what God is like. See, when it came to the rescuing of the human race, God did not phone it in long distance. He didn't flip a switch. Remember the old days when you changed your cable service? A guy would have to come out to your house and jiggle around in the box behind your house. Now they just click a keypad and, and that's it. From where they are, long distance, they change your whole programming, right? God did not do that. The nature of our God is that he rolled up his sleeves. He got his hands dirty. He got involved. You know, some of us who are in business in our church understand this. You can't do everything through a phone call. Sometimes, even in this day and age of the Internet and video conferencing, sometimes you've just got to physically be there. There is no substitute for presence. And God understands this. Look what it says in Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. What this illustrates about our God is a deep, deep humility. That he was willing to take this huge demotion. And, and listen, I know that it's hard for us to fully grasp this, but just the act of becoming human was a massive drop from who he was. 
I want you to think about places you've been in the name of God serving. Maybe the inner city, maybe the, the, the garbage dumps outside of Cairo, Egypt. Maybe some of you have been to places that you think are horrific places where there's so much human suffering. And praise God, we got to go there and do something and help these people. But what gave us some comfort, if we're honest about it, is we got to come home after the trip was over. We got to eat good food again. We got to go back to McDonald's, ah, McRib, and and take a hot shower in a clean bathroom without animals dying on the side. And, you know, we come back to that. But I want you to think about the concept of not just going there for a visit, but for that to become your whole world. To really live there. To not just go as the great giver from beyond coming into that pain, but to become a part of it yourself, to be bound by its limitations, to be cut off from all the other options and resources you're used to, to become just like them. Because in some small measure, that will help you to understand what it meant for God, the Son, to take on human form and join us. The other thing we learn about God in the incarnation, about the fact that he came near is that we smelled really bad when he came here. Okay? I mean, really bad. There are places that I, I've, I've visited where the first thing I noticed was the smell. I mean, you can't get to, close to the people, right? Because you're still, you could, just give me a second. I gotta, I gotta get used to the smell around this place. Sometimes it's just bad, sometimes it's just unfamiliar, but we smelled bad. It says in Scripture, the stench of our sin was rising into the nostrils of God. That's a very graphic description of what humanity seems like to a God who is transcendently holy. And at a time when we should have been so off-putting, when when God should have rightfully rejected the human race, instead of rejecting us, He actually demotes Himself takes on our limitations and and, and our, our form, and he joins us and he comes with us. He draws near. He makes the first move. When it came to reconciliation, God, unlike all the other deities that humanity has come up with, the one true living God is radically different. He doesn't sit on his perch in heaven and say to a lowly humanity, see if you can jump up here. See if you can do it all right. If you can be totally righteous, make the cut, do all the prayers, all the giving, all the fasting, jump up to where I am because I am holy and you smell bad. I'm not going down there. That's what every other religion seems to teach about the deity is that he is impossibly far from us and we've got to scramble and in many cases spend a thousand lifetimes doing it over and over to climb and claw our way up to God. What the incarnation reveals about our God is he's radically different than that. Our God comes down to us. He makes the first move. Look what it says in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, while we still stank of sin. Christ died for us. I think these two truths... That in the incarnation of God coming near, we see the humility of God and we see how radically committed he is to reconciliation, to restoring broken relationships. Those two truths should have a couple effects on us. First, it should produce great comfort in us to know that our God is like this because he is the all-powerful God. He could have also been a temperamental little kid, a brat, a tyrant, but he is so good. 
That should give great comfort. But it should also inform the way that we live. Because I believe that the true love of Christ flowing through any church, any person, is never a love that is exercised or practiced from a safe distance. I love what Sarah shared today. I love that she didn't just write a $32 check every month, but she got on a plane and went to a village and visited that child, entered her world, moved into her neighborhood, even if it was just for a moment. That is a description, a picture of the love of Jesus Christ. It is divine love, not to stay far, but to come near. That is always the way God works. And maybe you're struggling this morning because you feel far from God, and rightfully so. You've done some heinous things. You've seen some stuff, said some stuff, done some stuff that you think God would just, if he knew and he does know, he won't accept you. That is not true at all. It is at the moment when you think you are the most unlovable and unapproachable and unacceptable that God says to you, look at my son Jesus and the magic, the wonder of what Christmas represents, the incarnation of God, and you will know something about me. Never mischaracterize God as a distant, aloof God. Maybe your father or your mother were like that, but God is not. He is always straining to draw near and to pull you closer to Him. That is our God. We must become utterly convinced of that or our evangelism and our own walk with Christ will never have the fullness of experience that it's supposed to have. Here's the second thing I believe that we see in this amazing doctrine of the Incarnation is that when He came, He came full of light and life. You know, sometimes I work a little late. I work till like 7 or so, 7 or 8. And when I come home, my, my wife and kids are out on some outing, maybe at the mall or shopping. And so when I come home, I come home to a dark house. It used to be a dark, quiet house, but we got two yappy little dogs. So it's a dark house erupting with dog barks. It's a pretty irritating scene to come home to. Okay? And, and I notice this when I walk in, and I'm so used to coming in, and my children run up to my and, and jump into my arms, Daddy, or at least two of them, you know, the other two, you know. But they're they're getting older. I I, I don't I don't necessarily want that from them. But you know, the two little ones come up, and there's lights, and there's a smell of food, and there's this frenzy of activity. Dogs are running around. But when I come home to an empty dark house, the feeling is very different. And the first moment that I flip on the lights, my countenance and my mood change dramatically. There's something about light that is universally regarded as a welcome thing. Let me at least say this. Light and life are regarded as good things, and their opposites are almost always regarded as bad things. Very few people who are healthy love darkness and death. In fact, if your son or daughter comes up to you and says, Dad, do you know what I love more than anything? I love darkness. How many of you go, I'm so proud at this moment. This is the day I've been waiting for when my child tells me that what they love most is the dark. You see, universally we know that there is something welcome, something drawing and attractive about light and life. Even people who say they prefer the nightlife are drawn at night to places filled with life and light. If somebody says, oh, I like the night, ask them, do you sit in the dark at home alone 
in your living room floor staring at the ceiling? If you do, you probably won't have much company ever because that isn't exactly attractive to people. Even people who like the night go to places like nightclubs where, yeah, it's dark, but it's also really bright and stroby and flashy and loud and there's energy. We throw away dead batteries. We run fast from dead parties, don't we? And so there's something about death and darkness which we want to push away from us and we want to go towards where there is light and life. And so it's a profound thing that as John is introducing Jesus, the words he uses to describe who Jesus is and what he's full of is he has in him this life and this life is the light of men. Apart from Jesus, human beings have been responsible for mind-boggling acts of darkness, haven't we? Sex trafficking, child abuse, adultery, political corruption, crime of every sort, destruction, war everywhere. Apart from Christ, we have managed to do staggering acts of death and darkness. Some of our greatest acts of darkness happen under the banner of religion and religious ideals. Think about the Crusades in the Middle Ages. Think about the Holocaust. Think about the Spanish Inquisition, all done under the language, the guise of religious argument. And yet, apart from Christ, all we have ever seen in the world is death and destruction. Apart from Jesus, we can't even manage to hold our own families together. And so he says with great hope that the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world through Jesus Christ. This world needs Jesus more than this world will ever admit. This world needs Jesus more than most people in churches across America this morning even recognize. There's death and darkness everywhere around us that we look. They shouldn't even call it the news anymore. They should just call it the death and darkness report. Everything's scary. Everything's going to kill us. Everyone's dying. We all stink. What in the news makes you smile or laugh? This is our world, but into it, a great light has come. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. There is in Jesus this surging vitality. In fact, scientists tell us that matter came onto the scene and after billions of years, it just decided to spark up life. They're just guessing when they say that. There's no way to prove that. I don't care how many degrees they have. I used to be a scientist at the PhD level. I've looked at it. It's all hogwash. It's all conjecture. It's all faith. You can't even explain where that matter came from. Here's a better answer. That in God is this pulsing vigor, this life and vitality which cannot be suppressed. And because there was so much life and so much light, it burst forth out of God and found matter and physical expression in what we call creation. That to me is a more believable explanation of everything we see around us. And I believe I can hold to that view without being a scientific idiot because it says to me that there is a force which we cannot reproduce or explain. It's called life. 
You can put all the right fluids coursing through the vessels of a human body, but once it's dead, it's dead. You cannot put life back in. That is an act of God. It's a mystery we don't understand for all of our scientific prowess. There is life in Christ that is irrepressible, and it will surge forth wherever God is present in Jesus. That's why during during Jesus' earthly ministry, he said of himself, This is him describing his own ministry. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 9.12. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jesus, when he came, he came among us bearing light. And here's an amazing thing. He says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but listen, whoever walks in him will also have the light of life. The great privilege we have if we've been touched, blessed, convicted, transformed by Jesus is that we not only know the one who is the source of the surging life and light, we also then become bearers of light. And so he says, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When Jesus entered the world, he finally brought the possibility that this garbage we see everywhere doesn't have to be the end of the story for everyone. That hope has entered the story now. It's just like when you're reading a hopeless tragedy, but suddenly the hero is written into the story, and you think maybe just for a moment, will we be saved? That is what Jesus brings. And wherever he is present in our world, life and light in an irrepressible way surge forward. If you're in a situation right now where there's a lot of darkness and death and pain, I can guarantee you, if you examine it honestly and closely, Jesus is probably quite far from the picture in terms of inviting him in, submitting to him, listening to him, loving him, worshiping him. Because wherever Jesus Hold sway. Life and light abound and push back the darkness and death. Many of you have probably seen this image before. It's a NASA compilation um, photograph of the Earth shot from, from outer space, and it shows all the places where all those little lights are cities where each one of those pinpricks of light is the entire light of a whole city or metro area. And the reason they publish this photograph is to show, first of all, one thing I thought was, wow, most of the world is really dark, right? These are, this is basically a civilization or industrialization distribution map. It shows you where all the electricity, all the development is, and look how brightly lit the right half of the U.S. is. Parts of the, the southeastern coast of South America, Europe is lit up like a Roman candle, and India is pretty bright and out in Southeast Asia and, and, and Far East. But look how dark the rest of the world is. And so that gives you an interesting insight into it. The first thing I thought when I saw this was, Europe and America will be hosed if there's ever an electromagnetic pulse attack. But <clears throat> then the second thing I thought was, wow, it's interesting to see the lay of the land. I don't know if you can see this, but this is a screen grab from my Xbox 360 from Call of Duty, Black Ops. And it shows you at any given time where the two, at this point when I took this screenshot, there were 2.76 million players online at the same time playing this game. And it shows you where those 2.76 million players were distributed. And as you can see, most of the people wasting their lives are in the U.S. 
and in Europe. The advanced, industrialized, developed nations are the ones wasting their brains along with me on meaningless video games. Now, those images give us a visible pictorial presentation of how light and dark are distributed in our world. I wonder what the light distribution map looks like in your world, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your apartment building, on your campus, in your network of friends. How many points of light are there? Are we fully embracing our invitation and blessing to be a bearer of the light of Jesus? through our clear proclamation of the gospel that saves lost people, and through our lives, which also paint a vivid picture of what change in Jesus actually looks like. The gospel must never be divorced from those two things. It must be word and deed. And as we live out the same way that God did in the incarnation, word going into action, the word becoming flesh, We have the privilege of lighting up our world. Is it happening? Jesus came into the world to light this place up. But the amazing thing is, he wants to do it through us. It is an incredible privilege and a very serious responsibility. One that cannot be backpedaled from. One that we cannot preach out of the Christian experience. To bear the light of Jesus is one of our greatest honors and one of our first priorities as those who know who he is. Now, don't be discouraged if as you try to bear the light of Jesus, you meet with the same opposition that he did. It says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Even Jesus didn't have an easy time of it. He tried hard for three years, and eventually a rebellious humanity killed him without mercy. If you are going to bear the light of Christ, some hard times will come. Opposition will be there. But take heart. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not and cannot overcome it. I don't want to run too long, but let me, let me just tell you, no matter how great the darkness is that you feel trapped in, even the smallest flicker of light will conquer that darkness. You cannot douse a candle with an auditorium full of dark. In fact, it works exactly the other way around. And if you're in that situation where there's something so dark in your life and you're waiting for hope, for rescue, you're waiting for Christ to show up in a powerful way, do not give up. Light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Wherever Christ is, he is irrepressible. Can I just very quickly give you one last thing that I think we learn about God through the incarnation is he dwelt among us. The most familiar part of the Christmas story is also one of the most amazing. God came to earth as a baby. That's what this picture is about. Let me ask you something. As far as a a strategic plan, wasn't that about the dumbest plan God could have carried out. If you're going to enter a hostile humanity, wouldn't it make more sense to come down as a 45-foot-tall, gigantic, muscle-bound, glowing figure, fully developed, dropping down from heaven with about a million angels behind your back, armed not with little cute arrows that make people love each other, 
but with Gatling guns. Okay? Wouldn't that be more of an impressive display of God coming into the world in an undeniable way? So why does God instead, when he enters the scene, choose the most dangerous and time-consuming pathway of entry? Why would he come in as an infant, newborn? Have you ever seen a newborn baby? Some of you who have a newborn hand, you just hold them up. Talk about a pathetically helpless creature. The human newborn is perhaps one of the most fragile beings on the planet. Animals are out there, you have a baby in the middle of the bush, that thing's walking home in like two hours. Human infants are dead inside of a day without constant care. So why does God enter the world as one of the most helpless life forms on the planet? Utterly dependent on a teenage set of parents to meet his physical needs and look after his survival. And why does he come as a baby and not as a fully developed man? Why go through all of infancy and childhood, adolescence, young adulthood? Why go through that whole long journey? 30 of the 33 years was just growing up. He doesn't even come out onto the scene until the last three years of his earthly life. Talk about a really bad strategic plan. I don't understand that about God. It's a weird strategy, but that's where his genius is. What is his motivation for taking such an odd pathway in joining our creation and invading us? Because it says the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. This is not a drive-by shooting. He was hanging around for a while. He stayed 33 years. We get a hint to his motive from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's what I believe that is saying. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that one of the reasons God came to earth as a baby is so that as he rescued us and loved us, he would do so from a position of true understanding. He fully experienced what it is to be human, not in theory, but in act, in actual deed, there are no shortcuts to growing up human in a fallen world. And he went through every last minute of it just like us. How many of you are 33 years old or younger? You can lie. This is, you can kind of lie. Ladies, this is your chance. Kind to throw your hand up there. All right. So many of us have walked the earth about as long as Jesus has. In those years, what he's doing, think about everything you've already seen, felt, experienced, stored up. All the emotions that surged through you, all the challenges that faced you. Remember what acne was like? Do you remember what it felt like to ask your first girl to dance at a junior high dance and she said no and you did a long march back across the dance floor? Dang. He experienced what it is to be human. So that as he rescued us, he did it as one of us in the most profound way. He identifies with us. You should never say to God, well, you can say it, you'd just be wrong, but we should never say to God, you just don't understand me because that's one person you don't get to say that to. Oh, he understands you. In fact, There are things he's experienced we will never have to bear because he has saved us. He knows what it's like to be in your shoes. 
He doesn't know the way I know when you sit in my office and I counsel you and I say to you in sympathy, man, I I can begin to imagine what it's like to be in your shoes. I want to mean it, but I can never really know. Jesus knows. One of the great things about the way that the incarnation unfolded was that God decided to fully get in here with us before he rescued us. I think that's powerful. I found in my life that it's much easier to judge a person or a group of people from a distance without understanding than it is to really identify with them. Whether it's an urban teenager pregnant with her third child by a third different father, whether it's the very, very rich trust fund brat wasting their time in the Hamptons, clubbing every day, going to inherit $500 million just for turning 18. You know, it's so easy to look at different groups of people and go, ugh, gross. I judge them. And maybe at some level, we are morally justified in saying that is not a good way to live. But I find it's a lot easier to judge people, dismiss them, but it's a harder thing to really identify with and understand the world in which a person lives that produces some of what we do. Why is it that everybody else's sin is just moral weakness? Your sin is an irrepressible, unavoidable response to the hardships of your life. Why is that? What Jesus did was show us that he was not going to judge us from a distance. He was going to fully identify with us. And as one who understands, he would redeem us as one who gets it. I think that has staggering implications for the way that we live our lives. Do you know that one of the ways to measure your spiritual maturity is how committed you are to drawing near to people, not staying at a safe distance, but drawing near? And it may not be easy, but at least don't give up the fight. Don't say, sorry, that's just my personality. That's the way I am. Fight it, because it's one of the marks of divinity, one of the marks of Christ's likeness that we draw near, especially to those we find it hard to be around, that is a marker of spiritual growth. Another marker of our spiritual health is if we're like Christ in our commitment to reconciliation, if we're the ones who make the first move, don't be that spouse who goes, don't touch me. You're going to sleep in the doghouse for about eight weeks before I even look at you again. Don't be that person. You have no right, no moral ground to stand on to act like that. Not when Jesus has been so very different with you. One of the marks of Christ's likeness is not to bear a grudge, to be, to, to have sour grapes in your life for decades. It is to make the first move, to keep walking towards reconciliation every chance you get. I'm not saying I've done it perfectly, but I know this. This is the way of Jesus. And it's one of the things the incarnation teaches us. I think another implication for our life is that if we bear Jesus in us, there is in us an irrepressible vitality that is surging to escape. And where Jesus is worshipped and fully present, he will have an effect on the people around us. He will. The people you love that don't know Jesus, they will see him eventually through you. I believe that with my whole heart. Finally, the love of God, whether it's God's love for us or us 
loving others in Jesus' name. It's never practiced from a safe distance. It's not phoned in. It's always a love that gets involved. It's patient. Why do you think Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, describing what love is? He began with love is patient. It digs in for the long haul. It doesn't quit after a year or two of frustration. It doesn't pack up and leave the church right away because I didn't like it here or someone made me mad. It doesn't quit on a marriage. It doesn't give up on a child. Love is patient. If we learn nothing else from the incarnation, doesn't it show us he decided to grow up from infancy to dwell among us? And the love of Christ is never something that is just hit and run, drive by. It dwells. It stays a while. It wants to move into the neighborhood. It is not a crusading love. It is an abiding love. And that is always the way of Jesus. So when we read in scripture that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, I hope that for the rest of your life, your heart will be warmed by what that reveals about the God we have. And the staggering implications for how we then should live our lives. Would you bow with me in prayer? You know, the one thing that just has been ringing in my mind all week preparing this, is, man, the more I look at God, the more I see it. I'm just not that much like him. Truth is, when people bug me, I'm happy when I have a reason to avoid them. I'm not somebody who always wants to draw near, but God is. He's so different from us. So as we respond in prayer... Before we bring ourselves into the equation, let's just first respond to what a great God we have. Thank you that you came near. And thank you that when you came to slum it down here among us, what you brought was this vibrant life and light, something to push back the darkness and death everywhere around us. And you didn't come for a short visit. You dwelt among us for 33 years. You stayed. Thank you. Let's just pray in response to that first. Can we? As we continue to pray, I believe that the incarnation is not just about what God did for us, but what he also wants to do in us. Think about your personal world people around you you love maybe even just the people around you that are waiting for you to be a light bearer will you be one who draws near will you be one so committed to healing broken relationships that you will make the first move even if you are the one who was wronged Will you be humble like Jesus? Will you set free this life and light which God put in you? You don't have to generate anything of yourself. Just let God do it through you.
He is unbelievably powerful when we release Him. Just get out of His way. He wants to light your world. And will you stay at it? Don't give up on your marriage, on your church, on your child, on your friend. Don't be a three strikes and you're out person. Dwell among the people that God's given you. Stay. Why don't we just have another couple minutes where we just respond back to God and bring ourselves to the altar now. Lord God, we thank you for being who you are. You are such a good God. You are so not like us. So we thank you that you who are better than us, so different from us, have come to be among us. You live inside of us. We invite you, Lord Jesus, so full of life and light, to burst forth in our lives, in our hearts, to push back the darkness and the death that is always trying to creep in. For every marriage in crisis, every parent about to give up on a child, every friend who's thinking about calling it quits, in every place where hopelessness wants to win, we pray that the hope of the incarnation, God among us, would renew our hope and give us strength to put one foot in front of another today and tomorrow and the next day. We thank you for coming to us when it was impossible for us to claw our way up to you. We love who you are. We pray that over time, by your great power, you would make us more like you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.